Grover Cleveland was president of the United States for two terms in the late 19th century. And that's enough for him to be sort of permanently etched into the annals of history. But what makes Grover Cleveland truly unique, aside from being actually named Grover, which is, which is pretty unique in and of, of itself, but his two terms were not consecutive. In other words, he won the presidency in 1884, served the term, he was defeated in his re-election bid. Then in 1892, he ran again and won again. So old Grover, he was our 22nd president and he was our 24th president. No one else has managed that feat, not even Teddy Roosevelt. He tried and failed at that and he was super famous. In, in history, the world over, it's very uncommon to regain power after it has been lost. It's very unusual. Napoleon managed it. Uh, the British have had, have had three prime ministers do it in their history, though one of those was Winston Churchill, who, you know, maybe could have been elected God in England in the 1950s had he wanted to. But in the history of the world, it's, it's very difficult to regain lost power. And that is what is facing King David as we open uh, where the curtain rises on our latest installment, as we follow David through his life as recorded in 2 Samuel. Here's where we're at as our story picks up. We had just finished uh, reading a the story of a war, a civil war between David and David's own son, a guy named Absalom. Absalom had orchestrated a rebellion that had lots of support. He got David kicked off of the throne in Jerusalem. David had to retreat. Absalom, for some period of time, um, was king, raised an army to go defeat David once and for all. But in the previous chapter to this, Absalom was the one who was killed by David's top general, Joab. Um, and then Joab, at the end of the previous chapter, Joab kind of had to shake David and tell him to start acting like a king. Because Joab understood what David sort of missed. It's really hard to regain lost power. It's like Joab at the end of the last story was telling David, you're not king yet. If you don't consolidate support, you're not going to be. So this chapter, we're going to read the rest of 2 Samuel 19 in five chunks. And it's all about politics. If you like politics, first of all, what's wrong with you? But if you like politics, like this is your chapter. If you don't like politics, this is still your chapter. You're here. Let's read 2 Samuel 19, see what we can learn about regaining lost power as David does that today. So we pick up one half of a verse up in 2 Samuel 19, verse 8, the second part. Now Israel, that's Absalom's men, Israel had fled each to his own house or tent. All the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. 
But now he has fled out from the land from Absalom. However, Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now then, why are you silent about bringing the king back? You know, I think we'll stop right there. We're going to make this six chunks. Because verses 9 and 10 are really a summary of two sides of a debate that were raging throughout Israel in the aftermath of this war. As Absalom's forces spread back out over Israel, they take the news with them that Absalom's rebellion has failed. Absalom is dead. And a big question is asked throughout Israel. And the question is, now what? And the two sides of the debate that are summarized here go something like this. I mean, yeah, David did some great stuff for us early in his reign. He did defeat all of our enemies, including the hated Philistines. But that's old news. We just sort of helped topple that guy. He abdicated the throne to his own son. We can't just like bring him back, can we? The other side of that debate in verse 10 is, yeah, but if we don't, then what do we do? I mean, the guy we appointed instead of David is dead. The rest of David's sons support David. And that side of this debate wins out. You want to know in the people's minds why the the main reason why David is welcomed back as king? Because there's no other viable option. That's it. What else are we going to do? Let's move on. Verse 11, now we're going to see David try to, to gather political support to become king again. Starting in verse 11, then King David said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, saying, hey, go talk to the elders of Judah, and here's what you should say. Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the word of all Israel has come to the king, even to his house? You are my brothers. So again, David is saying, say this to Judah. You're my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be last to bring the king back? Say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? May God do so to me and more also if you will not be commander of the army before me continually instead of Joab. And then, or thus, or in that matter, verse 14, in that manner, David turned the hearts of all the men of Judah united like one man so that they sent word to the king saying return you and all your servants the king then returned came as far as the jordan river and judah came there to gilgal in order to go meet the king and bring him across the jordan in those verses 11 through 15 david what we would say david's doing there is he is consolidating his base he goes to his home tribe Judah, the Jews, uh, of which he is a member. And he tries to see if they will support him to become king. And maybe you want to read that and go, well, of course, his tribe supported him. Remember, the, the rebellion that just ousted him came from inside the tribe of Judah. It was centered at Hebron, the, the main city of the tribe of Judah. So David first has to make sure he's got a base of support amongst his own tribes people, the Jews, Judah. And then he does what all politicians do. He starts giving people stuff 
so that they will support him. And over and over in this chapter, David's going to do stuff to get political support that you are not going to like. Starting right here. David says, why don't you go tell Amasa that he can be the commander of my army now? You know who Amasa is? If we back up two chapters, he was the commander of Absalom's army. So this is David saying, hey, we're all family here. There's not going to be any kind of purge of everyone who was against me. We're not going to have show trials and executions. In fact, I'm going to let Amasa be the head of my army. Fire Joab. He killed my son anyway. That's a story for last week. How do you feel about that? That's, that's politics. That's what happens. And Judah says, hey, all right, we're on. You're, you're obviously going to be reasonable about this. And all of the Jews, the tribe of Judah, decide... Uh, as one man, no hard feelings. David's going to be our guy. Let's go gather him up and bring him across the river back into the promised land, into Israel. David's political skill is on full display in this chapter. Now, we're going to move on, but before we do, there's a lot of names in this chapter that are hard to keep track of. There are two characters in this next chunk we just have to know something about to understand what happens. Shammai and Ziba. We've met them before. Here's who they are. During David's retreat, when he got kicked off the throne, he's retreating away sadly in tears from Jerusalem. This clown Shammai shows up and travels along this parallel route to David, throwing rocks and dust at David and hurling curses at him, symbolizing this is the kind of death you deserve, death by stoning. The dust is you have, you have uh, hurled the nation into mourning and shame, and the curses are like God is getting you for what you have done. That's Shammai. Ziba, Ziba is such a liar, liar, that it's amazing his pants have not burst into flames during this chapter, okay? Ziba is the guy that during David's retreat came and met David and gave David and his men a bunch of supplies they needed, but then he deceived David. He told David, your buddy Mephibosheth, who is a crippled man that was the son of David's best friend who's been dead for a long time now, um, Mephibosheth has deceived you and betrayed you, David. And then that led David to make a decision he shouldn't have made. He took Mephibosheth's family land, the land of the late King Saul, and took it away from Mephibosheth and gave it to the liar Ziba. Okay, you got all that? Those names will be on the test, so I hope you're taking notes. Let's go on. Verse 16. Then Shammai the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with Shammai, as was Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household to do what was good in his sight. They were doing David lots of favors. 
And Shimei, the son of Girah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And Shimei said to the king, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what I did wrong on the day when you came out from Jerusalem. Please don't take that to heart. Verse 20. For you know, David, that I have sinned. Or excuse me, I know, David, that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my Lord the King. But Abishai, that's one of David's generals and nephew, the son of Zariah, said to David, Should not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David then said to uh, Abishai, what do I have to do with you, O sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? Most people would answer that question. Yeah, lots of them. For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? Verse 23, the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king swore an oath to him that day. Okay, in this story, Shammai, uh, who last time we saw him was throwing rocks and cursing David, comes and falls down before David and says, you know what, king, can't we just let bygones be bygones? I sure am sorry about that. I don't think you should take this to heart. What would you say to this guy, if you were David? Or how about this? In your heart, when you read this, what do you want David to say and do to this guy? But David pardons him. He lets him go. Why? Well, there's way more going on here than this guy just deciding to say he's sorry. Shammai doesn't show up empty-handed. He shows himself to be a political heavyweight because he doesn't show up alone. He shows up with a thousand members of a second tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin, by the way, is the, the tribe that Jerusalem, the city, sits inside of. It's pretty important to have the support of King Saul's tribe of Benjamin. So this guy shows up him and Ziba and a thousand important members of that tribe, his words are saying, I sure am sorry, I hope you can forgive me. His actions are saying, I can deliver you the support of the tribe of Benjamin. And if you kill me and Ziba, don't count on it. That's politics. Make strange bedfellows. So David doesn't kill him. And he, he, this is, in verse 23, this is like amnesty. It's a full pardon. I give you my word. You shall not die. All right, next, let's see how David settles things up with his friend Mephibosheth and the liar Ziba. Verse 24. Then Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. And he had neither cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. 
It was when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that David said to him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? So Mephibosheth answered, Oh, my lord, the king, my servant deceived me. For I said, I want to saddle a donkey for myself so that I can ride on it and leave town with David. Because your servant is lame. I'm lame. I'm crippled. Moreover, Ziba has slandered me to you, but you are like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. For all my father's household was nothing but dead men before you, king. Yet you set me among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? And so David said to him, Why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide all of King Saul's land. He gets half and you get half. Mephibosheth said to the king, Let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely to his own house. Okay. In verse 24, we learn first that Mephibosheth has really let himself go since David had to leave Jerusalem, okay? This is gross, okay? Washing your feet was very important in that day and age. It ain't a a terrible idea to, to right now in modern times, to tell you the truth. He hasn't washed his feet since David left. He's wearing the same clothes. He hasn't shaved. He looks a wreck, and that's very important information. It's the sign that he has been mourning. He's been on a hygiene strike. And he says, I'm not going to clean myself until David is king again. Here's why that's important, though. As soon as David sees his friend Mephibosheth, he knows he didn't betray me. He's been mourning for me. And listen, that was very public, right? Where was he looking like that? In Jerusalem, while Absalom was king. It's like he put out a yard sign and wore a t-shirt that said, Vote for David. The whole time, Absalom was king. This was very courageous. I bet he was the only guy in town who was doing this. And so David, who's been told Mephibosheth has betrayed you, He smells him coming and he says, he hasn't betrayed me. That's why David says in verse 25, he's like, oh, Mephibosheth, why didn't you just come with me when I left town? I wouldn't have made this terrible decision and gave all your family land to Ziba. Verse 26, Mephibosheth says, I tried. My legs don't work, remember? Remember? I'm crippled. I asked my servant, that's Ziba, I asked him, hey, will you get me a donkey so I can leave town with the rest of you? And Ziba apparently said, just wait right here, boss. I'll be right back. He goes and gets all the donkeys and leaves town. Then Mephibosheth tells David, everything that guy told you about me is a lie. Every word of it. And David knows it's true. But... Mephibosheth, I love Mephibosheth. This is the most admirable guy in the chapter. You know what Mephibosheth does in verses 27 through 30? He gives David like emotional permission 
to, to give him the shaft and give stuff to Ziba. Because Ziba's a part of this delegation that can deliver the tribe of Benjamin to David. And Mephibosheth knows it. So he says, hey, listen, that guy's a liar. I love you, but you do what you think is right for your kingdom. All I care about is that you are king again. And he says in there, listen, I'm already way ahead with you. Verse 28, it's like all my father's household was dead men for you. Remember, he's a member of the previous royal family. He says, any other king would have killed me a long time ago. And you brought me into your household. What am I going to complain now that I only get half of the royal lands? I'm playing with so much house money, it's not even funny. You, and he says at the end, you can give it all to him. All I care is that you are king and that you know I didn't betray you. Love that dude. And David gives half of the late King Saul's land and property and money to this lying snake, Ziba. How do you feel about that? I love how Dr. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, what he said here, he writes, Ziba is nothing but a greedy liar. But he was also a helpful greedy liar. (laughs) David and Mephibosheth both know the kingdom is not about their feelings. It's just not. It's very easy... To look at any kind of leadership can be the leadership of of a family, of a church, of a business, of a nation. It's very easy to look at decisions they make and have this idea that there's these overly simplistic answers. Any idiot with half a brain would never give Ziba half of King Saul's lands. It's complicated sometimes. Let's move on. Verse 31, honoring a guy named Barzillai. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on to the Jordan with the king to escort the king across the Jordan River. Now, Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while the king was at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. The king said to Barzillai, You cross over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. But Barzillai said to David, How long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Or can I hear any more the voice of singing men and women? Why then should I be an added burden to you? Verse 36. Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please let your servant return. Let me return that I can die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. However, here is your servant, Chimham. If you're looking for boy names, might I suggest Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king, and do for him what is good in your sight. The king answered, Chimham shall cross over with me and I will do for him what's good in your sight. And whatever you require of me, I will do. And all the people crossed over the Jordan and the king crossed too. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and Barzillai went home. Okay, 
During this rebellion, David's headquarters was, was at a place called Mahanaim. And while he was there, this guy Barzillai bankrolled David's operation. Very wealthy man, very great man. It's politics. So David says, I got to take care of the ones who got me where I'm, where I'm headed. And he tries to do that. You sustain me. You come be a part of my administration. Give you a nice cushy job. All the pleasures the kingdom can bestow. And Barzillai's like, yeah, you know what? I'm too old for that. It's like, I, I, can't even, I can't even taste the difference between good food and bad food anymore. I can't hear the good entertainment. That's literally what he says. So it'll just be wasted on me. Let me die here. Here is probably my son or grandson that we're not told. Here's Chimham. Take him. David's like, all right, that's it. That's politics. Let's finish our chapter now. Verses 40 through 43. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah... And half the people of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, the other tribes, because the king is the close relative of us. Why then are you angry about this manner? Have we eaten at all at at the king's expense? Or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts in the king. Therefore, we also have more claim on David than you. Why then did you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? And yet the words of the men of Judah were then harsher than the words of the men of Israel. There is the picture of David. He crosses the Jordan River. He's back on his home turf. That is the picture of him like marching back into Jerusalem. It's not exactly a ticker tape parade. It is inter-Israelite bickering. He is accompanied by a huge delegation from the tribe of Judah and a not quite as huge delegation from the other 10 tribes. From this point on, by the way, Benjamin will just be a part of Judah. They are together. And what has to be really frustrating is David is hearing two sides argue like kind of about the same point. They are all saying we want David to be king. So what are they arguing about? We just want it to be because of us and kind of about us, right? The men of Israel come and say, why are you taking the king in there, well, you're just going to set up this administration that's dominated by the tribe of Judah, and we're going to be all left out. And they say, uh-uh, no, we're not. We've never done anything like that. We've never been on the take before. Why would that start now? And he's, besides, he's more our king than he is your king. Oh, uh-uh, he wears our idea first, and there's 10 of our tribes. There's only two of yours, so this really should be more about us. And David has to be like, oh, my goodness. We want David to be king, but we want it to be kind of for us and about us. And before long, a situation is set where the two sides won't be able to agree about anything. That would never happen in a nation, would it? Where there's two sides that 
Even if one side has a good idea, the other side can't admit it's a good idea because they're the evil bad guys. This also reminds me of a lot of churches. A lot of churches, we want Jesus to be king. But we better, be, we better, we better sing the songs I like. We better, my committee better pick the whatever for the whenever. And that's our chapter. David, God's chosen king, is back on his throne. But it's not exactly great. What are we supposed to learn from a chapter like that other than politics hasn't changed all that much? Aren't there some similarities in all that stuff to today? It's 3,000 years old. What do we learn? First, I think wisdom teaches us that what is best for the kingdom and what is best for my feelings are not always the same thing. We see that in, in this chapter over and over. David is like back on top of his game here. But we read this and we get disappointed with David. I know I did when I first read this. I want to shake David. What are you doing? Amasa shouldn't be your general, right? Ziba shouldn't get half of King Saul's land. Uh, Shammai should be executed, right? But David understands what's best for the kingdom and what's best for his feelings are not the same thing. I think there's wisdom in recognizing that. These... First, in leadership, as I mentioned, there are unsettling decisions that have to be made that everyone won't like. Can you imagine, like if they had cable news during David's day, if they had AM radio and evening news shows, can you imagine what they would do with that whole Zeba thing, right? It writes itself. This known liar, deceiving snake, King David gave half of King Saul's land to him, right? There would be no explanation. There would be no just how anybody with half a brain could never, right? Right. Even though David has to hold his nose to make some of these decisions, I think they're the right decisions. And for us, if we really want what is best for the kingdom... Sometimes what's best for our preferences and our feelings has to take a back seat. I'm not saying we allow or ignore like sin. May it never be. But what's best for the kingdom and what's best for my feelings aren't always the same. Second, just like in this chapter, we also have a king who's been absent for a while at least physically. But he is sure to return. Jesus is coming back. He is going to reign. We are going to stand before him. I think it'd be, it's a helpful question to ask, how, how am I preparing? What do I think about that day? And then you can look back through this chapter and think, who am I most like? 
Am I like Zeba or Shammai in some way where, yeah, I mean, I bow to the king, but I'm really just trying to gather and gain what I can gather and gain. Or maybe, maybe we're more like someone we'll meet in a, in a couple of chapters. Maybe we're still in open rebellion against the king. I don't know where you are with Jesus when, as you come in and sit down this morning. But if the Bible is correct, you are going to stand before him someday. And the Bible says you are going to bow and admit you were king the whole time. And the fate of those who come to that decision during their lives is vastly different from those who rebelled to the end. Wave the white flag already. Surrender. The king is coming. And he has invited you to be with him through faith. And still as a part of that question, I think maybe the best thing we can learn from this chapter is to be like Mephibosheth. Be like Mephibosheth. I mentioned my admiration for this guy a minute ago. He is our model of our hearts and our attitudes toward King Jesus while we wait for him to return should look like Mephibosheth. First, we are crippled. We are, we are crippled by sin and we need the good king. But more than that, Here's three things that's true about Mephibosheth in this chapter. First, he grasped the fact that his king, David, had already saved him and gifted him with infinitely more than he could ever deserve and ask. Right? He tells David, my whole family, we should just be dead men before you. You saved me. You brought me into your house. That is true. No matter what is happening in your, in your life, no matter where you're at in the level of pain and what has been withheld, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Rescuer, you have been gifted with infinitely more than you can imagine, think, or ask. You just may not have it all yet. Second, because that was true about Mephibosheth, he cared less about what he received and held on to than he cared about the advancement of the kingdom. He told David, like, I don't care. You do what's best for you because that's all I really care about. You are what is best for me, so I care about you and the advancement of your kingdom. And then finally, Mephibosheth had faith enough to respond to what seemed like a loss. He lost half his farm. But he had faith enough to respond to what seemed like a loss with the confidence that just what his king decided was actually best for the whole, for the kingdom. And then that means ultimately for him. All I care about is that you are king and your kingdom advances. Can we be like that? We can. We can also be like Zeba and Shammai and some of the rest of them. But we can understand our king is the king. 
place our faith in what he did at the cross. He did in my place that his resurrection guarantees mine one day with him. And then understand I am playing with house money. This world can never take away from me anywhere close what I've already been given and guaranteed forever and ever and ever. Because of that, we really can live more open-handed. We can care less about what we, what we build, what we gain, what we gather in this life because we know ultimately it's kindling and worm food one day. And then when our sovereign king makes a decision that makes, it, makes us go, why me, why now, why this? Somehow we can have enough faith to say, hey, if this is what you decided, somehow it's good. All I want is for you to be my king even now. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you have, you sent our king to lose first in our place. To lose everything, to be stripped, to be humiliated, to be beaten, not because of anything he had done, but because you were placing my sins, our sins on him and pouring out your wrath on him as our substitute. Father, as we more and more focus this year on our king and his kingdom, will you help the things of this world to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace? We are playing with so much house money, Lord. We have little right or need to complain. Thank you for your grace and your patience with us. In Jesus' name. Amen. As our baptism candidates go and get ready, would you, the rest of you stand uh, and sing our closing hymn?